Well, good evening. Thank you. My name is Tom Werner. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree Community Church, and I'd like to welcome you to the second in our five-part series on What is Truth? Saturday evenings in April. Uh, Joe Brehob last week led us in a discussion of the question, Is There a God? And tonight my task is to talk with us about the question, Is the Bible reliable? So here's where I expect to go this evening, just to kind of give you the shape of things. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about my personal experience with this question. And then I want us to look together at three questions about the Bible. So first, what is it that Christians believe about the Bible? What is the kind of the traditional view that Christians have held about Scripture? Secondly, I want to look at an alternative view, which is the historical critical view of Scripture, and then I want to talk about whether there are still good reasons to believe that the Bible is reliable. Now, I warn you in advance that um, I am a lawyer, and, and so this taints the way I, taints, that doesn't just color, it taints the way that I look at everything. And so I'm going to sort of ask you to be my jury tonight. That is, when I'm looking at a question, I tend to weigh out both sides of an issue, and I can look at the whole thing, and I tend to marshal facts that favor my side. So we're going to talk about both sides of an issue tonight. I don't necessarily want you to conclude too early exactly what it is that I think until we get to the second half of the evening. So bear with me. It might get factually, there might be a thicket here that you have to work your way through. So be patient. So if you're ready, I would like to pray for us and we'll get started. So Lord, we, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather this evening. We thank you that you have given us minds that allow us to reason and to think and to talk. We pray that you would help us this evening to use those faculties, help us to think wisely and well, that we would be challenged, that we would be informed, that we would love truth and that we would want to know, we would have a passion to know if you are accessible to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So this is a personal subject to me. I would say that this was the first challenge of my Christian life, and so it's important to me. I grew up in a non-religious family. My family never prayed at meals. My family never went to church. We never discussed God around my family. My mother and father would go out on Saturday nights to dinner, dressed up, looking very fine. My grandmother, who was Catholic, would be our babysitter. So my sister and I would watch with my grandmother the Saturday night movie. And then just before bed, my grandmother would lead us in the Hail Mary which we rattled off as fast as we could. Hail Mary, the Lord is with me. And that was the extent of my religious education for the first 20 years of my life. When I was in college, about my sophomore year, I, was, I wanted to know more about God. And I had the opportunity to go to a Young Life camp. Young Life is a high school ministry. So I got to go to camp. And during my week at camp, I heard the Bible and the contents of the Bible for the very first time. And I came to believe during that week that God loved me and that he had spoken to me through the Bible. That fall, I went back to my university and 
my summer experience with God was immediately challenged. The previous spring, I had registered for an Old Testament class, and now that class was upon me, and I found that my newfound faith was immediately challenged. My Old Testament professor presented the Bible in a way that was entirely different than what I'd heard at camp. It was, to me, a foreign land, and I had to decide pretty quickly whether there was anything in the Bible that was true. The question was simple, how do I read the Bible? But the answer was not simple. So first, how do Christians read the Bible? Well, there are three words that I think would be helpful to us to look at the Christian church's traditional understanding of the scriptures. So the Christian church has historically affirmed three words, inspiration, inerrancy, and the authority of the Bible. So the word inspiration is a translation of a Greek word used in the Bible that means God breathed. Christians believe that the Holy Spirit used human authors to write the Bible using their backgrounds, their vocations, their education, their life experiences to write not just their own opinions, but the words of God that in that process he used them, used their backgrounds, but the Holy Spirit also oversaw or superintended the writing of the scriptures. So he communicated his message through human writers. Secondly, Christians believe that the Bible is inerrant, by which we mean that the Bible is without error. If the Bible is inspired by God and God is truth, the Bible cannot err because God is truth and God cannot lie. And then the third word is authority. The Bible has authority over our lives. This means that the Bible is our rule for our faith, that is what we believe, and our practice. The Bible is the rule for the way that we live our lives. And each of these ideas, inerrancy and inspiration and authority come from the Bible itself. So when Christians believe this, we're simply affirming what the Bible tells us about itself. Now, I want to stop and say that the fact that the Bible is inspired and inerrant and authoritative does not necessarily mean that we take the Bible literally. The Bible uses different kinds of literature to communicate its message. So included in the Bible, there is history, there's letters, there's poetry, there's apocalyptic visions, proverbs, prophecy, metaphor, simile. Each of these is a different literary form and we should interpret the Bible according to the form of literature that we're reading. So to give an obvious example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you are the salt of the earth. It is not helpful if we think that what we should do on a snowy Sunday morning is to go out to the church parking lot, throw ourselves on the ice to melt it, right? We understand that this is a metaphor and that Jesus is saying about the quality of life that Christians should enjoy, a quality of life that lends flavor to the world and preserves society. So Christians should use ordinary rules of literary interpretation to understand the Bible. We don't interpret the Bible literally. Now, none of this, inspiration, inerrancy, authority of the Bible was in any way remotely hinted at in my Old Testament class. This was not a point of view that was going to be discussed. 
So since about the 1700s and the so-called Age of Enlightenment, traditional understanding of all authority has been under scrutiny. So that includes the Bible, but it also includes kings and nations and military traditions, religious traditions, all of these, and including the Bible, have been subject to scrutiny. And this, to me, seems right and proper. For some centuries, humankind was expected to follow the traditions of society without criticism. Some traditions were helpful, some were not. Some ideas were true, some were mere superstition, and so all of these were subject to scrutiny. In my university, then, the Bible was studied exclusively through what was called the historical critical method. So what is that? Historical criticism investigates the origin of a text, in this case the Bible, to understand the world behind the text, and then makes judgments about the accuracy and reliability of the texts. Some of the names that are associated with historical criticism of the Bible include Albert Schweitzer, Rudolf Bultmann, the Jesus Seminar, and Bart Ehrman. So as an example of this, we're gonna to look tonight at the Jesus Seminar. So who are they? Well, the Jesus Seminar was a group of about 150 critical scholars and laymen who were active in the 1980s and 1990s. They used a voting system to evaluate the authenticity of about 500 sayings and events in the Gospels. So they, every member got beads, four beads, and they cast beads. A red bead meant that the voter believed that Jesus did or said whatever was in the passage, like, that's Jesus. A pink bead meant that the voter believed that Jesus probably did or said something like the passage. Well, that kind of sounds like Jesus. A gray bead meant that the voter believed that Jesus did not say or do what is in the passage, but the passage contains the ideas of Jesus, like, well, maybe. And a black bead meant that Jesus did not say or did not do what's in the passage. There's been a mistake. So the beads were given points, which were totaled to score each statement or event and the Jesus Seminar published a color-coded gospel, like what you see on the screen. Now, I know you can't see it very well, and it's probably not all that important that you get the detail, but you can see in here there's black up at the top. Eh, he didn't say that. There's some pink here. Well, it's likely that he said something like that. Then there's a little bit of kind of a gray-green, which might be something that Jesus said something like. So, then they did a total and publish the Gospels. They used criteria to evaluate whether Jesus had said or done any particular thing. The criteria were set, and I'm gonna give you just two criteria, one on the positive side, one on the negative side, so you can get an idea of how they operated. So the first is that Jesus said or did something if it met the criteria of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment is that a passage which is embarrassing is probably true. After all, the writer would not have a motivation to make up anything which is embarrassing. So as an example, the crucifixion took place 
because the crucifixion is embarrassing. It was shameful. It was degrading. No one would possibly make up a crucified hero. Okay? Criterion of embarrassment, we pass. On the other hand, there's a criterion of self-reference. This is a text which has Jesus referring to himself, talking about himself like, I am the way and the truth and the life. These critics believe that Jesus would not have talked about himself. This was added later by his followers and is not authentically from Jesus. So the Jesus Seminar has a particular point of view on Jesus, which we're going to come back to in a minute, and their point of view is that Jesus was a laconic sage. Laconic sage. So those are a couple of the criteria. You get the idea of how they operated. So what were the findings of the Jesus Seminar? Well, they believed that less than 20% of the sayings and works of Jesus in the Gospels are authentically his. As the, the most radical is that in the Gospel of John, there is only one statement which came from Jesus, and that statement was, a prophet is without honor in his own country. Now, while I was grappling with all this, it took me some years till, I, I didn't think of this, it took me till some years later re to realize something that is important and really is probably should have been obvious, and that is we each bring our own assumptions and predispositions to the question of the reliability of the Bible. And the conclusions we come to are not completely rational on either side. So, not long ago, Tim Keller, who's the pastor of a large Presbyterian church in New York City, was, asked, was interviewed by the Huffington Post, and they asked him a question about his relationships with unbelievers. The question posed was this, what have you discovered about religious seekers and skeptics? What are some of the re reasons that people reject religion, and what are they generally searching for? So this is what he said in part. He says, one thing I've learned is that the reasons for both embracing and rejecting religious faith are never merely intellectual and rational. Of course, the intellectual and rational play a role, but the reasons for all moves or paradigm shifts, in other words, the reason for that people think about things differently, they're also partly emotional and partly relational. It is a great mistake to think that re deep religious belief can't be highly rational or to think that non-belief can't be largely a matter of feeling and experience rather than reason. I think that Keller is right. Both believers and unbelievers have reasons beyond the rational and logical for the way that they think about the reliability of the Bible. There's also emotional motives behind this. So as I was looking at this, the motives of my Christian friends seemed to be obvious. It was a fair likelihood that they wanted to hear from God, and so they came to the conclusion that the Bible is reliable. But the motives of skeptics was not so clear. Why would they have doubts? But skeptics can also have their reasons for doubt, so let me illustrate. When I was a boy, I was a bookworm to the point that it was sometimes a problem. I see some parents looking at kids, right? <laughs> I was a bookworm to the point that it could be a problem. At dinner time, I was frequently reading a book and my parents would call me for dinner. Tom, dinner's ready! And it seemed always to come at the crucial moment of the story. And so I conveniently became deaf. 
Now, maybe you've had this experience too. Maybe, you were, maybe it wasn't books, you were out playing. Maybe you're having this experience on a regular basis at home. Maybe you're playing Call of Duty or you're in the middle of a tweet or whatever it is. I'm talking about things I don't have any idea about now. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? So my parents would call me once, twice, three times, no response, no response, no response. And I always claimed that the message was lost in transmission. And so, for some while, my inability to hear was a strong defense. Eventually, my parents took me to the pediatrician and had my hearing tested, and the game was over. <laughs> so sometimes we want communication to fail. Sometimes we want the message to be lost in transmission. We want the call to be garbled. The Christian claimed that God has communicated himself to us through Jesus of Nazareth is profoundly disturbing. It means that he's calling us to his table. And so this is unsettling. It means that I have to drop what I'm doing. I have to drop what I want to do. I have to come to the table and take time to know God. That is deeply unsettling. And I may rather continue, want to continue to do what I've been doing. The atheist Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, is an example of a non-theist who was willing to acknowledge his assumptions. Huxley believed that life has no meaning, and, he, and here's what he says. One thing, oh, excuse me, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. So you can see how someone like Aldous Huxley would come to the conclusion that the Bible is not reliable. I want to come back for just a minute more to the Jesus Seminar and what they believe about Jesus. So I mentioned that they believe that Jesus is a laconic sage. What in the world is a laconic sage? Well, first of all, they are basing their conclusions about Jesus on what they believe to be similar historical figures. Whom they, among whom they include at the top Elijah and Elisha and a main, man named Apollonius of Tyana. All these, and therefore Jesus, were men who were very wise. That's a sage, right? Somebody who's a wise person. And all of these three were people who were men of few words. That's the meaning of laconic. So this is a man of few words. The three of them are, Jesus must be, and Jesus is therefore self-effacing and modest. Jesus, the laconic sage, there are certain things we can say about, that, about him that he is not. If he is a laconic sage, he does not initiate dialogue or debate. He does not offer to cure people. He does not make claims about himself. And in particular, he does not claim to be the anointed, the Messiah. The Jesus Seminar believes that this laconic sage, Jesus, who didn't talk much, was embellished by his followers after his death. And so they made claims about him. This Jesus, since he doesn't initiate dialogue or debate, 
is not demanding. He doesn't call me to the table. He lets me do what I want. Now, next week, my friend Scott Holly is going to talk more about the claims of Jesus, and I would encourage you to come back next week and hear what he has to say. I'm interested to hear more. But for now, you can see that the Jesus Seminar says the Bible is not, based, is not reliable based on assumptions about Jesus as laconic sage, which they have made before they examine the reliability of the Bible. In other words, they say that their assumptions are based in history, but a comparison with the three holy men that they've picked out is really very thin. So Elijah and Elisha lived 800 years before Jesus. Apollonius of Tyana isn't Jewish, he's Greek. So they've imported these people from long distances or many years to draw conclusions about Jesus. And they never really allow for the, uh, for the possibility that what Jesus did was totally unique and not like anybody who came before him and unlike anybody who will ever come after him. So we have to ask, are the assumptions that the Jesus Seminar makes about Jesus truly based on history? Or does the Jesus Seminar make these assumptions because they want a Jesus who does not demand too much, who does not disturb or unsettle, who lets me do what I want to do and does not require me to leave my book and come to the table. This is a Jesus who is safe, who is tame. This Jesus would probably be acceptable to Aldous Huxley, the atheist. And so we end up with a kind of practical atheism in which we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, but he doesn't really have any impact on our lives. He doesn't change what we think or what we do. So, in our examination of the reliability of the Bible, we should not ignore the assumptions of either side. We shouldn't ignore the assumptions of Christians who want to hear from God, nor should we ignore the assumptions of unbelievers who don't want to be disturbed. So, now I'd like to look for a while at six reasons that I believe that the Bible is reliable. And all of these have contributed to my confidence in the scriptures. So the six reasons to believe the Bible is reliable. So first of all, the Bible accurately describes human experience. So from the first time that I heard the gospel at Young Life Camp, I thought this describes what I see day to day. Every person who has ever lived has fallen short of God's intentions and is in need of forgiveness. God took on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. Though he had committed no fault, Jesus died a brutal death in my place. By his death, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin and then to be forgiven and to be made right with God. I need to accept the work of Christ on my behalf. This to me, I saw as describing my own condition and the condition of the world. This related to the Bible because I didn't see anybody who lived a life that was good enough to claim that they had met God's standard of perfection. So if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, there is no category for the person who has lived longest without sinning. The newspaper is a record of man's inhumanity 
to man, and especially you can see that this past week, right? I thought that the Bible described our condition in part because the heroes of the Bible, Abraham and Moses and David and Peter and Paul, all of these people were flawed people who were in need of forgiveness. They were people just like me. So I had to acknowledge that the world is not right because I'm not right. And the Bible was describing life as I saw it. Secondly, the Bible is remarkably well-preserved. So some people have the idea that in the process of copying and recopying the Bible, over centuries, generations, there were some things that were lost in the Bible, there were some things that were added to the Bible, and now no one knows what the original said at all. This is a misconception. The Bible is remarkably well-preserved. So you are looking at a manuscript from something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, a shepherd in Israel who was searching for a lost goat found scrolls in a cave near the Dead Sea. And among these scrolls, there were large blocks of the Old Testament. And these scrolls dated from about 100 BC, or BCE as it's sometimes called. Prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscripts we had of the Hebrew Old Testament were from about 900 A.D. So there was a, a gap of about a thousand years between these newly discovered scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the scrolls that were the oldest that we had from about 900. So there was an obvious question, which is, we can now compare these two sets of scrolls and see how they fared over a, a thousand years of hand copying. Were there significant changes in the scriptures over a thousand year period with the hand copying? And what was amazing is that the comparisons showed almost no discrepancies in scrolls a thousand years apart. So this particular scroll is from chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is this Old Testament prophecy about a coming Messiah, a suffering servant who sounds remarkably like Jesus of Nazareth. But we might ask whether Isaiah 53 is so remarkably like Jesus, perhaps because someplace along the line there had been changes made to the manuscripts. So when the 166 words of Isaiah 53 were compared between the two scrolls, there were only three letters difference. No changes in words, no changes in wording, no changes in meaning. So the scriptures were remarkably well-preserved by hand copying over a thousand years. And this gives us the assurance that the Old Testament we read today is the Old Testament that the original writers intended us to have. So how about the New Testament? So we're gonna look here at a chart. This is called the bibliographic test, and we're gonna look at some ancient manuscripts. So if you look on the left side, you can see the author and work of old manuscripts. So you can start at the top with Homer's Iliad, and we've got Plato in there, and we've got Caesar, seven old works ending with the New Testament. We're gonna look for a minute at when these were written. When, was, when do we believe that Homer's Iliad, for instance, was written? Well, we believe it was first written about 800 BC. 
then we're going to look at when we have our earliest copy. So our earliest copy dates from 400 BC. Now, that means that there was a gap between the original writing and the earliest copy of about 400 years. Now, a long time gap is the enemy of an accurate manuscript because we don't know what happened in that time period. So the longer that time gap, the more we should be suspicious of the accuracy of the manuscript. Make sense? So if you look down, you'll see that there's a 400 year gap, 100 years, and then over 1,000 years, 750 years. Then we get down to the New Testament. It was written in, 400, in between about 40 and 100. Our earliest copies date from 125, so there is a time gap that compared to these other ancient manuscripts is minuscule. That means we should have a very accurate New Testament. The other enemy of an accurate manuscript is if we have few copies to work from. So the scholars can look at different copies of the manuscripts. They can identify any discrepancies and they can come up with what is the best manuscript, what's the most accurate manuscript if they have a lot of copies to work from. So for Homer, there are a lot of copies but nothing compared to the New Testament. There are 5,465, those are Greek manuscripts only. So we have also the Bible in ancient manuscripts from a, from a number of different languages. So the upshot of all this is that we can believe that there has not been important degradation between the, what the original writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament wrote and what we read today. So third, Third reason to believe that the Bible is reliable is that the scriptures are consistent with archeological evidence. So archeology span has not found anything which either definitively proves or definitively disproves the Bible. But when we look at archeology span and we look at the Bible, we see that there's a general consistency between the two. Uh, so we're going to look at one example of how archaeology supports the reliability of the Bible. So you are looking at, isn't she attractive? You are looking at a statue of the ancient goddess Artemis. In chapter 19 of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul was caught up in a riot in the city of Ephesus, which was then a thriving city. The city residents worship this goddess of hunting and fertility. And silversmiths in the city made statues of the goddess Artemis, which they sold. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And here is the temple as it has been excavated and as it looks today. In Acts, we read that a silversmith named Demetrius and some of the other silversmiths feared that the new faith that was being taught by Paul would effectively put them out of business, that, he would, that the new faith would sweep the city and that they would, it would end their trade in the silver Artemis statues. And so they engaged in a riot. They started the riot, we read, in, a, in the citizens' assembly in the city theater, an excavation has revealed a theater which would seat 25,000 people, which you see pictured here. 
So generally, what we see in Ephesus is consistent with the story of Paul in the book of Acts. And that's the way we have found so much archaeology. So we have, as example, we have names of ancient kings and ancient officials and the dates of their service, and they're consistent with Scripture. We have details about burial practice. We've excavated water systems, sites of of, uh, sacrifices, temple sacrifices, and all sorts of things, and things fit. Things fit. The archaeology lines up with the Bible. If the Bible were legend or fiction, things would be out of place. There would be anachronisms, there would be incongruities, and we would be able to identify these and say, this is a tall tale, this is not true. But this is another place archaeology supports the reliability of the Bible. Okay, number four on your hit parade. Other ancient writers support the truth of the New Testament. So sometimes people believe that the only reason, that the only way that we know anything about the Bible is through Christian writers. But these events of the Bible are referred to by ancient non-Christian Roman and Jewish writers who describe these early days of Christianity. So we're gonna look at one Roman and one Jewish historian. The first one was a man named Tacitus who was a Roman historian He wrote about the great fire in Rome, which took place during the reign of Nero. That fire was blamed on Christians, and here's what he wrote in part. They got their name, that is Christians, got their name from Christ, who was executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. That checked the pernicious superstition. He's not very flattering about Christians. That checked the pernicious superstition for a short time, but it broke out afresh, not only in Judea, where the plague first arose, but in Rome itself, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world collect and find a home. So when it says that suppressed the pernicious superstition for a while, what do you think that was about? And why did it break out afresh? He's talking about the resurrection, isn't he? So even though he doesn't speak in very flattering terms, he does confirm the description of Christianity that we read in the Bible. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was a Jewish general who led the troops of Israel and then he effectively defected and went over to the Romans who occupied Israel. And then he wrote something called the Jewish Antiquities, which was a history of Israel. And here's what he wrote about King Herod and John the Baptist. Some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army was a divine judgment, a very just penalty for his murder of John the Baptist. For Herod killed him in spite of the fact that he was a good man who taught the Jews to practice virtue, to show righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and to form a community by means of baptism. John, falling a victim to Herod's suspicion, was sent in chains to the fortress of Macherus and put to death there. So this account that's written by this Jewish historian lines up with what we read in Matthew chapter 11. Fifth observation is that the internal consistency of the Bible is evidence of its origin from God. So the Bible was written over a 1500 year span. It was written over 40 generations by 40 different authors from every walk of life, including military men, kings, fishermen, shepherds. It was written in three languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And despite this diversity, 
the Bible holds together in one central unfolding plot, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth will redeem humankind. It seems impossible to explain in human terms, so let me give you a couple reference points. In May 1988, the cover of Life magazine announced Rhett and Scarlet return at last, the sequel to Gone with the Wind. Many readers looked forward to the sequel by Alexandra Ripley, but according to Amazon.com, the sequel received uniformly dismal notices from the critics. I bet you didn't know that there was not just one, but two sequels to The Godfather, written not by Mario Puzo, but by Mark Weingartner. They were widely anticipated major disappointments. So in human terms, the fact that you have a successful story, successful novel with great characters and a certain culture, ought to seem like it ought to ensure that at least one sequel is going to hit, right? Well, it doesn't work that way, does it? So how is it that the Bible, with all this diversity, can hold together in a unified whole? And I would submit that there's only one way that that can happen, and that's because the Bible has supernatural origin. The Holy Spirit is what holds it together. So I'll tell you that it took me about a year of struggle and conversation and internal wrestling to be satisfied that I could rely on the Bible before I could read the Bible again with confidence that the Bible was God's message to me, that it had not, that the message had not been lost in trans, transmission, that it had not been garbled. And this brings me to my sixth and final observation, which is that the Bible passes the test of life. Life choices require a worldview. I, life happens, and I have to have some basis to decide life questions, like how will I pursue my education? For what end will I pursue my education? What will I do with my money, with my time? What will I teach my children? What kind of legacy am I leaving? Life demands a worldview. On the screen, and hopefully as you came in, you were given an invitation. This is an invitation by God given to us for dinner. It reminds me of my childhood. Tom, come to dinner. No response, or maybe I would respond. So this is something like the invitation of my childhood. This is an invitation from God for a fine dinner with wonderful company. And the prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, put it in just these terms. He said, listen, Listen to me and eat what is good, and you shall delight in the riches of fare. Up here, if you look carefully, you'll see that I filled my own name in. Would Thomas Werner please join the king of the universe for dinner August 20, 1970? That's a long time ago, isn't it? And for every night thereafter. So I want to say that every person Every person here, every person in the world has received this invitation. That's what to me the Bible is. It's an invitation to come to the table and to talk with and to know God. There are three possible responses. You'll see that again on your personal invitation. One response would be, I will attend. I think that's a great choice. That's the choice that I made many years ago. 
Another response is, nope, this isn't for me. I think that's the wrong choice, but I can respect it. The, the third choice seems to me to be the most problematic, which is the message has been garbled. It's been lost in transmission, and I won't consider whether I might come to the table. I would encourage you, don't make the third choice. Make one of the first two. I would encourage you to look into the invitation that God has offered you and to either say yes to that invitation or no, but not to avoid that invitation altogether. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll be finished. Lord, I thank you that um, you gave me that invitation so many years ago, and uh, I thank you that this is an invitation that I understand and I believe to be open to everyone, that you have given us your scripture, that it is reliable, that we can take confidence in the fact that you would like us to come sit at your table. I pray for each person here that they would investigate that message and that they would make a decision. Shall I come to the table or continue to do what I want to do? Thank you, Jesus, for our time together. We ask, please, that you would be with us as we consider your call. And we pray in your name. Amen.